0: Hello and welcome to another weekly podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. If you're in the Mankato area, join us every Sunday morning at 10.15 a.m. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at MankatoHilltop.org. Best of all, God is with us. We're going to continue exploring the Sermon on the Mount today. We are in the final chapter of that message that you started way back on Easter Sunday, I think. So hear the word of the Lord, as given to us in the gospel according to Matthew. We're now in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Do not judge, so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, But do not notice the log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. And this is the good news. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So do you remember last week I strongly suggested to you that you need to read the weekly email that Michelle sends out? you remember that? Well, if you did your homework and took my suggestion to heart, you will probably do today, today's pop quiz really well. You ready? So this, this quiz is titled, Who Said It? And credit where credit is due, I did not give these to Michelle. I got them from her. I was so grateful for them because they make a great introduction to the words we're hearing today. So here are some famous theologians' thoughts on judgment. Question number one. Who said... By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Now, you've got four choices. Martin Luther, John Wesley, Brene Brown, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who do you think it was? John. You think it was John Wesley. I think it was Martin Luther. You think it was who? Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Okay. Well, if you thought it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer... Next slide. Then you'd be right. This is from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And the full quote is, Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Okay. Second question. Who said... We judge people in areas where we are vulnerable to shame. You think that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer too? You think he got two of these? Okay, could be. Brene Brown? Let's see the next slide, the answer is Brene Brown. And the fuller uh, quote is, research tells us that we judge people in areas where we're vulnerable to shame, especially picking folks who are doing worse than we're doing. We are hard on each other because we are using each other as a launching pad out of our own perceived shaming deficiency. And um, if you ever have a chance to watch her TED Talks on vulnerability, I recommend them to you, they're good. Okay, question three. Who said we should be rigorous in judging ourselves and gracious in judging others? Murmur, murmur, murmur. murmur. I hope you said John Wesley, because he's the one who said that. And you know, I was looking at this and I thought, my preaching professor in seminary would love this because. It encapsulates in 12 words, and that's the limit on a sermon theme, what this message is all about. We should be rigorous in judging ourselves and gracious in judging others. All right. Well, there's really only one left, right? You think that's going to be Martin Luther? Okay, so he said, be careful not to measure your holiness, by other people's sins it was martin luther right yes yes be careful not to measure your holiness by other people's sins that martin luther cuts right to the quick doesn't he don't go measuring your own holiness against the sins of others but we do that don't we My mom used to say, there but for the grace of God go I, whenever she saw someone that she knew had stepped out of bounds. And what she didn't realize was that every time she said that, we knew she meant the same thing as that Pharisee who was praying in the temple. You remember the one back in Luke 18 who said, basically, this is my paraphrase of that scripture, God, thank you for making me better than everybody else. And that is usually the way we interpret this teaching of Jesus about judging others. When we put ourselves in the position of judge, it is easy to look down on the person we're judging, to consider ourselves better than they are. And Jesus says that's where we would be wrong. So let's take a look at this word judgment for a minute. It has several layers of meaning. There's the legal term, where an authoritative judge hears evidence and makes a decision that is legally binding. There's that kind of judgment. And then there's the kind of judgment your parents wanted you to show when you were first stepping out on your own. They wanted you to have good judgment and make good decisions. And then there's spiritual discernment when we make decisions based on what we believe God wants us to do or not do. See, all of these forms of judgment have something to do with decision-making, choosing right over wrong, or choosing the best path. But when we hear this passage, we immediately recognize that Jesus is talking about a different kind of judgment. Jesus is talking about condemnation. This is the kind of judging we do when we think someone is wrong and we want to point out just how wrong they are and how right we are by comparison. And Martin Luther says, don't go measuring your holiness by someone else's sins because your sin is just as bad. My sin is just as bad. You know, do you remember this when you were a kid? Whenever you point a finger at someone else, Three more are pointing right back at you. Remember that? Yeah. So Jesus uses a great metaphor to show us what he means. Now, have you ever had a speck of sawdust stuck in your eye? Because you weren't wearing the goggles when you were sanding like you were supposed to? It can be pretty uncomfortable. In fact, your body will do everything it can to rid you of that speck of sawdust. Your tear ducts will start working overtime, trying to wash it out with tears. You will reflexively reach up and and try to rub it out, working it toward the corner of your eyes, where all those tears can help get it out. So why on earth, Jesus wonders, would you try to help someone else get a speck of sawdust out of their own eye when you've got a whole tree trunk in your own. See, God already created that mechanism for removing foreign objects from the eye. Tears. But even more so, you can't even see this speck very well because your own view is obstructed, like Bonhoeffer says, by judging others. We blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Do you remember back in John 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night wanting to know how to enter the kingdom of heaven and Jesus told him that that famous verse that we all learned when we were children, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. But Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to say, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, If God didn't send his only son into the world to condemn it, I'm pretty sure he didn't send you into the world for that purpose either. There is a story in John 8 about some people bringing a woman to Jesus who had been caught in adultery. They've already judged her, but they want Jesus to affirm their decision to condemn her to death and jesus won't do it he says whoever among you is without sin can throw the first stone and then he ignores them and one by one they drop their stones and leave and so when jesus looks up he asks the woman where they've gone and he says "Has no one remain to condemn you and she says no one sir And he says, Neither do I condemn you. See, it's that same thing, that judging thing. Go your way and don't sin anymore. Now, scholars can't find this story in any of the earliest versions of John's gospel. So most Bibles these days put this story in brackets. But it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Just they can't find evidence of it in the earliest copies. It does sound like something Jesus would do, though, doesn't it? And I love the way he both acknowledges and encourages this woman when he releases her. I don't condemn you and stop sinning. See, this is the kind of judgment Jesus expects from us between each other. This would have been clear to the disciples and probably to many of the people listening to Jesus preach beside the Sea of Galilee because they understood the Hebrew term for justice or righteousness to include both judgment and mercy. So when Jesus told us last week, back in the last chapter, Strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is what they would have understood righteousness to mean. Clear judgment and mercy. Walking hand in hand. So here in verse 5, when Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. He is showing us how to judge rightly how to care for our brother or sister's soul by tending to our own first. In fact, Jesus' very words are a perfect example of calling out the problem, you hypocrite, and then offering mercy. Tend to your own sin so your vision isn't clouded with poor judgment when you look at someone else's life. The Apostle Paul puts it a little differently in Romans 2, 1. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. So whenever you feel like condemning someone else, examine yourself first. Don't condemn without some self-examination, but don't be stupid either. Jesus says, don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. If your brother or sister in Christ doesn't want your help, let it be. God will do God's job. Remember last week's passage, each day has enough trouble of its own. You don't need to make more. What you do need to make, however, is space for grace, room for mercy. Discern wisely, but be sure to confess your own sin before you condemn anyone else for theirs. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will take care of the rest. Today, when we baptized Nora, I was reminded of a piece that was written several years ago by a guy named Jason Mitchley. Jason has written several books, and he serves as a United Methodist pastor in the Washington, D.C. area. And he gives us one good reason why it is so important for us to humbly look at our own sin before we condemn anyone else for theirs. It's because our kids are watching So I've adapted this a little bit because he wrote it when his own son was being baptized and we just baptized Nora. She's not Jason's son. But let me read it to you. Be warned. It's all cuteness and lace now, but in no time at all, these sweet little babies, after a brief sojourn in childhood, will hit adolescence. Their hormones will kick in and quickly conspire to undo all the good you've done them. These will be the years they push you, church. They will suddenly wonder how Jonah could survive that dark trip in the whale's belly. And they'll argue that David may have bested Goliath, but he's no match for Patrick Mahomes. And besides, David is hardly the unblemished hero your Sunday school teachers made him out to be proud of themselves, they will point out that Noah never would have had to build the ark had God not decided to flood everything and everyone in the world. They will push you. And if you're not up to the challenge, they'll be tempted to conclude that everything you've taught them and everything you teach is, at best, a fairy tale, and at worst, a lie. And church, you will be there the first time Someone Nora knows and loves dies. And when that happens, church, you better not resort to cliches. You better be prepared to show this baby resurrection of the body, hope at work among you. You might as well get ready now, church, because when those years arrive, you will have to struggle just to have your voice heard about all the callings that claim their attention and tempt their loyalty. Just when time seems to race by for these parents, tomorrow will seem forever away to our children. Everything from the faces they see in the morning mirror to the fickle loyalties of their friends will change almost every day. And whether they know it or not, Church, what they will need from you all is a community of constancy. They will need a people who refuse to let go of them, who refuse to let go of what they know to be true and enduring, who refuse to let them slip away before they learn to describe their world with the language you speak. And they'll never admit it to you, church, but what they will need in those years is a place where they need not wear a mask, a place where vulnerability isn't a dirty word, a place where a life of mercy and love and gratitude is a viable and even compelling alternative. And then they'll start high school. (laughs) And you will only have four years of Sundays left with them, so be warned. It will be harder for you to get their attention because they will no longer be listening to your words They will be looking at your life. I know, scary, right? And when they worship with you, they're gonna wonder if you're as friendly as you think you are. They're gonna wonder if you ever experience awe and mystery and whether you're just ticking off your weekly obligation and hoping it won't be too boring. They'll wonder if you're loose and free enough to allow the Spirit to enter your worship. And your lives. They're going to look at your life, church, and they'll question whether you conform your views and values to the God of Jesus Christ or whether you have sketched an idol in your own unthreatening image. They probably won't put it in those words, church, or any words at all for that matter, but trust me, they'll be thinking it. And then when they are teenagers, their BS rater will be so acute You better not patronize them, church. You do have a tendency to do that when a young person puts you on your heels by asking questions, you know. You better learn how to treat them as members of the body of Christ because right now, Nora, in the eyes of God, is equal to any of you. But when she's a teenager, it might be the last time you have her attention. So for her sake, I hope you lead a life that leads to the gospel. And I pray that just when she's being pressured and pushed to get ahead, to pursue her future, to achieve success, and to grab onto dreams, by then, you will have taught her that servanthood is the only path that leads to treasure. When this baby grows old, with a slightly thicker waist and slightly thinner hair, with a whole new set of questions, new hopes, and different struggles. I hope she will be able to remember her baptism and be thankful. And there will come a time, there always does, when our children will look desperately for where the living God can be found. And when that time comes, church, I hope they will have a community who won't just shrug their shoulders, who won't refer them to the pastor, who won't quote the Bible at them or try to prove anything to them. Don't you dare do that to them, church. Instead, you better be able, because of the integrity of your life, to say to them, come and see. Come see a place where they will find the Lamb of God in your flesh. A place where they will discover the coming kingdom previewed in your lives. A place where they will learn that God is to be found among the lame and the poor and the outcast. Not because you say so, but because you, church, invite these beloved children of God to come and see for themselves. Church, that's the sort of church I would want to give my life to. So I'm willing to bet... They'll want to give their lives to it, too. In closing, church, now that the water has hit this baby's head, I hope a realization will have hit you upside yours. Our children will never be able to live out their baptism if you, church, don't live out yours. Thanks for listening to another podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. Don't forget to visit us online at MankatoHilltop.org.